Hi there, everybody, and welcome to the Rupa Subramania Show. I am Rupa Subramania. Today, we explore a series of events that have put our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, once again at the center of controversy. It's a story of apologies, accusations, and a diplomatic feud that has far-reaching implications. Now, first, let's start with this jaw-dropping moment last week that everyone's talking about. In honor of President Zelensky's visit to the House of Commons, on the eve of Yom Kippur, Yaroslav Hanka, a Ukrainian war veteran, was invited to the House of Commons and received a standing ovation. The problem is, he's a former member of the 14th Waffen Grenadier Division of the SS, a unit that fought on behalf of the Nazis during World War II. Yes, you heard that right. A former member of the SS received a standing ovation in the House of Commons as the Speaker of the House, Antony Rhoda, praised him as a Ukrainian and Canadian war hero who fought against the Russians during World War II. You can't make this stuff up, and you only have to wonder how such a person found themselves in the halls of Parliament. Trudeau initially brushed off the incident, as he usually is known to do. He first deflected to Russian disinformation and propaganda, except this wasn't Russian disinformation and propaganda. Yaroslav Hanka, who was invited to the House of Commons and received a standing ovation, in fact, did fight for the Nazis as a volunteer. Eventually, under public pressure and a growing backlash, he apologized for inviting him to the House of Commons. However, he stopped short of offering a personal apology. Instead of apologizing on behalf of Canadians, as though we had something to do with this invite, he apologized on behalf of Parliament, even though it, the buck stops with the Prime Minister, not with Parliament, and Parliament is not a person. And he deflected the blame to the Speaker of the House, Antony Rhoda, who subsequently resigned over the controversy. Now, Conservative leader Pierre Polyever demanded that Trudeau take full responsibility for the scandal, criticizing him for hiding out in his cottage instead of facing this issue head on. As if this wasn't enough, earlier in the week, a few days before Nazi-gate, Trudeau makes explosive allegations against the world's largest democracy, India, claiming that Canada was in possession of credible intelligence that agents of the government of India were behind the June killing of well-known Khalistani separatist Hardeep Singh Nijjar, who was a wanted man in India on terrorism and other criminal charges. India has denied these allegations and has been united in its reaction to Trudeau's allegations. The widely shared view in India is that Trudeau did this for political reasons, both to placate Sikh Canadian voters and not lose them to Jagmeet Singh and the NDP, and also as a way to change the conversation when he and the Liberals have been tanking in the polls in recent months. The fallout has led to the expulsion of diplomats, travel advisories, and India taking the unfortunate and unprecedented step of stopping visas for all Canadian citizens. To make sense of all of this is my guest today, Anthony Koch. He's a seasoned political strategist and commentator known for calling it as he sees it. He gained prominence as Pierre Polyev's spokesperson during the leadership race, and he's now a public affairs consultant and political analyst based out of Montreal, but remains an influential figure in conservative circles. Anthony, welcome to the show. Uh, it's a great honor to have you here. Um, let's first start with the controversy um, that everybody's talking about, the controversy surrounding Yaroslav Hanka, a former member of the 14th Waffen Grenadier Division of the SS, 
receiving, <laughs> oh, well, first of all, being invited to the House of Commons, and then on top of that, receiving a standing ovation as a Speaker of the House, uh, praises him as a Canadian and Ukrainian war hero who fought against the Russians in World War II. What are your thoughts on how this individual ended up being um, invited in uh, in Parliament? Well, first, thanks for having me. But yeah, like this is fascinating because what the liberals have effectively done is they've argued the letter of the law on protocol, right? So technically, they're not incorrect. In the context of your standard run-of-the-mill House of Commons exchange, MPs and the Speaker of the House have the discretion to invite a constituent to attend in the press gallery, or not the press gallery, but in the gallery to, to watch the sort of proceedings. But as anybody who spent more than five minutes around active politics knows, when you've got one of these one-off unicorn style events. For example, the head of state of a foreign country, which also happens to be engaged in an ongoing conflict, addressing the House of Commons in person, the usual structure of these things is not the one that's actually followed. These are highly scripted events. And I'm not saying that in a deceptive negative way, but I'm saying, you know, obviously these things have to be scripted to a certain point because if they're not, you might end up with a situation where you accidentally invite a Nazi <laughs> to, to, <laughs> to be given a, a standing ovation by <laughs> unknowing bystanders and parliamentarians. So that's the thing that I find quite fascinating. You know, having worked on the other side of this, on the conservative side of things, et cetera, an event of this magnitude, okay? Even I'll just give you an example. Uh, you know, the last Conservative Party convention, there's a lot of people who gave speeches and a lot of them contributed in their own way. But, you know, people read the speeches before they're given to make sure mm. that one's not going to go up on stage and say something absolutely ludicrous or, you know, you, there's a certain message track that you want to follow. So it is absolutely shocking to me. And this is the, so this is what I'll say that Anthony Rhoda, the speech that he gave was not written over or read over, if, you know, even if the invite wasn't pre-screened, if it gets to the point of it being included in his speech, because you could see he was reading from a text. Okay. And it was actually yeah. funny because as he says, fought against <laughs> the Russian there's almost like a brief pause where he's like, well, wait a second. Uh, that sounds kind of fun. <laughs> okay. But the fact that that wasn't read over by at least three or four different stop gaps to make sure it's leads to me to one of two things. The prime minister's mm -hmm. office failed here in one of two ways. One, they either actually did vet just very poorly and didn't realize who they're inviting or two, they didn't at all. So it's either they did their jobs poorly or they just simply refused to do them. But no, uh, this is this is absolutely ludicrous. This suggestion that, you know, Ant Anthony Rota definitely had a role to play here. And I think it's appropriate that he resigned. But the fact yeah. that the prime minister is completely washing his office's hand of this mm. and then goes on to do his classic, like I said, right, where he gives the collective apology on behalf of parliament because he yeah. can never actually just give a personal apology on behalf of himself is quite something. Yeah, yeah. Let's go back to uh, Trudeau. Uh, Trudeau's handling of the situation and Anthony Rota's uh, resignation. Uh, you know, how could uh, Justin Trudeau? How could the Prime Minister have handled this better? One, I think, first of all, the fact that Anthony Rota took so long to resign uh, right away, mm -hmm. all that did was drag out the story. And second of all, the fact that he like. Again, even though an apology did come, it came several days later. And again, in a way that I think most people will rightly recognize, unless you're a dyed-in-the-wool partisan liberal, was thoroughly inappropriate. Right At the end of the day, leaders lead, and leaders take responsibility when things go wrong. The buck stops with you. And instead, we didn't get that. And everybody and their mother was coming out in the liberal land trying to justify this, explain how it wasn't the prime minister's fault, or even see, like, this is what I find funny. These are people, okay, in large part, mm who branded Canadians 
who had never so much as heard a fly in their life who came down as part of the Freedom Convoy during COVID, branded them, had no issues calling them every single horrible name in the book that you can imagine, including Nazi, okay? And now we actually had somebody who served as a volunteer in the Waffen-SS during World War II and swore a personal oath to Adolf Hitler. And there were, you know, liberal Twitter was awash with people trying to explain that, well, actually, the situation's quite complicated. I'm, I'm a very proud Jewish Canadian. You can see I wear a keep on my head. I wear a talitana. Mm-hmm. I've got a bag and David. I wear Hebrew rings, like the whole nine yards, you know. And I've mm-hmm. got people online calling me Joseph Goebbels and equivalenting me with, you know, the greatest propagandist of the Nazi German state because of the work that I've done for Mr. Polyev, who supposedly he could tweet a picture of his daughter and magically Rachel Gilmore and co will jump out to claim that this is somehow a dog whistle to the far right based on the number mm-hmm. of letters and the positioning they put out here. And then you've got an actual Nazi in the House of Commons yeah. who volunteered for the Waffen-SS, swore mm-hmm. a personal oath to Adolf Hitler, but there's context that people don't understand that we need to, we need to, you yeah. know, absolutely ridiculous. Like it, it's just, yeah. it, it blows the mind and it just goes to show you to what extent a lot of these people don't believe half of the things that they say. It's a political tactic to get people to be quiet and to discredit their opponents. So what exactly happened here? I'm still perplexed. Um, is is this incompetence? Is this um, stupidity? Is it malice? Uh, what exactly is going on here? Uh, I'm just thinking about that moment uh, when the speaker is reading from this text. Clearly, he hasn't read this before. As you pointed out, as and others have pointed out, he pauses for a second and he's like fought against the Russians and then he goes on. And it's that at that moment, they all start applauding and give him a standing ovation. Was there, do you know if there was a single member of parliament who was like, wait a minute, I'm not standing up for this. I'm not applauding this guy. Something's really off here. Did, did that occur to anybody? Like how, I don't how think does is. everybody just do this? I think, I think it just, it baffles the mind. Like, you know, if you're sitting there, now we have mm-hmm. a benefit of mindset, but if you're sitting in the house of commons, president Zelensky is giving his address, you know, And the Speaker of the House of Commons, in his official remarks, highlights this person in the crowd. I don't think anybody is going, hmm, maybe it's a Nazi. So you sort of go through the motions, you see everybody else. And then after the fact, it's like, wait, that's kind of suspect. And then people did the digging. But no, I I think I'll I'll be benevolent here. I'll be generous. I, I don't think this was, and I'll say it even from this perspective, this was supposed to be a huge win for the Liberals. Okay, so a major, major foreign policy win. Stuff's been going bad for them for a while. You know, the India situation was a catastrophe, but they were still able to spin that too, obviously, because a Canadian citizen was killed. And, you know, all of a sudden things were starting to go in the right way. And it's like, oh, now we got President Zelensky with his surprise visit in person, addressing parliament, emphasizing how much Canada has done for the Ukrainian war effort, was supposed to be a huge positive press day for the government when they haven't had very many in a very long time. And instead, it turns into another international embarrassment. So this is pure incompetence. This is pure incompetence. I don't think it's malice. And I, 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 I'm not going to accuse the prime minister or anybody in the Liberal Party of having secret Nazi sympathies. I'll leave them to do that to us. But this is just many, many, many people, a series of people screwed up and didn't do their job. And again, in terms of the process of how this rolled out, it seems, from what we do know, that the grandson of, uh, I'm forgetting his name now, but the grandson of Yaris- the- Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. His grandson had submitted something to the constituency office of Mr. Rota because they're residents of that riding saying, hey, by the way, Mm -hmm. my grandfather served. You think he could come? And that was sort of what started off the process. But I mean, 
Yeah. This is interesting, right? Yeah. I mean, Canada, we also we also keep in mind, by the way, the unit that he served in, there's yeah. a monument to them in Oakville. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like there's a monument to them in Oakville. Like, and this is one of yeah. the weird parts about Canada and you know all of our different diasporas. And all. Mm. We got all sorts of weird, interesting <laughs> stuff all across our country. <laughs> That when people actually bring a micro, you know, microscope to go, what? There's a Boffin SS, you know, unit in Oakville. Why? Yeah, but it's there. Yeah. yeah well, well, well. The thing is, you know, when that was pointed out by the Russian emb- embassy, I believe uh, a few years ago, um, the prime minister's office immediately uh, issued a statement calling it disinformation. Except that it was factually correct. And right. it's very similar to when uh, when it was discovered that Christian Freeland, uh, Christian Freeland's grandfather was a Nazi collaborator as well. And then the immediate reaction again, predictably, was it's Russian inform- disinformation and propaganda. Basically, and that was also the prime minister's uh, um, in- initial remarks when he was asked about what had happened. And you know he referred to Russian disinformation and propaganda. It's like they 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 seem to rely on this. It's like a stock yeah. response, um, and it's rather disingenuous. And do you think at any point we'll actually um, uh, engage with this murky past, where a whole bunch of Nazis were actually inv- allowed into Canada? I think it was. I forget who it was. Urban Kotler, maybe, uh, or some other person. Yeah, I think he said, you know, there was a time in Canada when it was easier for Nazis to come here than it was for uh, Jewish people uh, trying to escape uh, Hitler's regime. Yeah, no, precisely. And it's funny because it's, it's an interesting thing. She was even in the United yeah. States of America, uh, Operation Paperclip, right? After mm-hmm. the World War II, a bunch of Nazi scientists are given papers and brought to the United States. Some of them end up in the Soviet Union. And the space race ends up actually largely being driven but like, if you look at a lot of the senior uh, scientists at NASA for the first decades of its existence, a lot of them were were former Nazi scientists who had been given documentation mm-hmm. for the United States. So there's a very, mm-hmm. the post-war period, all sorts of people ended up all sorts of places for a variety of reasons. And that's the, that was the other thing too that's a lot of complicated as well. The number of people that were complicit in Nazi crimes yeah. is measured in the millions how and that's this is what they realize at the nuremberg trials too right is it's like mm. okay how do we hold people responsible who do we hold responsible and originally you know people come in with the intention of making sure that everybody gets what's coming to them and then you just realize that the sheer number of people is so obscene that it gets yeah. a little bit complicated but again in terms of this particular situation where we end up getting, I hope the government releases the documents. Uh, that's what like, Sija and B'nai B'rith have been asking for for a long time around not only this unit, but also specifically how many people were admitted after World War II, what was known about them at the time, and what was the criteria that was determined to use whether or not they would be considered you know, Canadian residents in good standing versus potential political problems. But mm-hmm. how hopeful am I? I think the liberals are trying to kill this story as fast as possible. I think they're trying to move on. And I, I don't think, uh, unless conservatives, which I'm hopeful about, force the issue on a lot of this, I think they're going to try to flip the page as quickly as possible. Well, of course. I mean, with the supine media establishment, uh, you know, they might just get their way. But, you know, how can you ignore the fact that Poland has now made a request uh, to extradite uh, Yaroslav Hunka to Poland to face trial for war crimes? during World War II. I mean, you can't just dismiss that. I mean, maybe you can, like, I mean, 
you can dismiss extradition requests made by India for people who are wanted back in India for all kinds of criminal activities there. But um, maybe they'll end up doing that in this. In this, I mean, he is 98 years old. I mean, 98 years old. This is something that happened, unfortunately, you know, over 70 yeah. some odd years ago. How much the details can you actually prove all these sorts of things? Because there have been academic inquiries into this unit in particular, mm -hmm. what, what they participated in, what they didn't participate in. The ideological component's not in dispute. Everybody uh, accepts and agrees that this was a Waffen-SS unit and that people swore yeah. personal oaths to Hitler and that there was an ideological dispute them. But in terms of getting individual soldiers, what they did, mm -hmm. where they were, what they knew, what they didn't know, much more difficult. So I understand yeah. the political reasoning that a Polish minister might request this in terms of the actual feasibility of this actually being seen through. Even I'm saying an extradition, an extradition request, even if it actually is legitimate and does, it takes a long time. So I'm I'm not holding my breath where that specifically is concerned. Yeah. So let's turn to India and Canada. Um, um, actually, the week of September 18th began with Trudeau making these explosive allegations in the House of Commons. Um, do you do you uh, find and, and, you know, the, the bilateral relations, you know, have just they were already frayed, but now they're like spiraling out of control. Uh, do you do you believe his accusations that Indian uh, agents agents of the government of India were involved in the murder of a Khalistani separatist activist? Uh, you think those allegations are well founded, or do you think that they're creating unnecessary damage to uh, a an important bilateral relationship? Well, this is the complication, right? I mean, the number yeah. one foreign policy priority of the West, uh, United States included, Canada included, has to be economic decoupling with the Chinese state. I guess mm. there yeah. are not that many options <laughs> when you're looking around the world in terms of where you want to go. India is the natural and obvious alternative. You've seen a lot of movement in that direction as well. Apple, for the first time this year, is releasing made in India iPhones, right? Mm. So you're seeing there's a, there's a transition, all sorts of stuff like that. And um in terms of what, what the evidence suggests, as of right now, we'll see. I'd like to see more. But the fact that the intelligence came from a Five Eyes ally, the fact that the Americans seem relatively supportive, the details are still unclear. I wouldn't be surprised if there were, you know, this is not something that just the Indian government does. These are governments around the world do this sort of thing all sorts of time, and I'm not justifying it. So that's why we need to take mm -hmm. it seriously. If a foreign government, any foreign government, assassinates or had a role in a, the death of a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil, regardless of whether the circumstances around how this individual became a Canadian citizen are quite interesting, to say the least. Um, it needs to be fully investigated. But that issue, I see it as fundamentally separate from another one, which is very valid that often comes from the Indian government, which is that Canada has a history of harboring mm -hmm. people who express extreme pro-Khalistani views. And the fact of the matter is, if you're a Canadian citizen and you support an independent Sikh state in the Punjab, that's fine. You have freedom of speech. People are allowed to do yeah. that. But there's a yeah. subsection of the. So that's what I'm saying. Keep in mind, I want to make explain to everybody because I know it's a complicated issue. Not everybody's well versed on it. Fact of the matter is, the majority, the Khalistani movement in Punjab proper in India, is as fringe as fringe can possibly be. It doesn't have a lot of cloud. It is a primarily diaspora issue that happens to be hyper concentrated in Canada, but even within the Canadian Sikh community, okay, Khalistanis represent a minority and the extreme Khalistanis represent a minority within a minority. But they exist, they exercise a lot of political influence because they're highly organized. 
And the kind of people that I'm talking about, I want to be clear, because some people try to misconstrue it for political purposes. If you deny the Air India bombing, right? Remember Jagmeet Singh, for example, took mm-hmm. him to the yeah. If, or if you're trying to suggest that it actually wasn't conducted by Khalistani terrorists, but that it was the government of India had this whole conspiracy to make them look bad, all sorts of stuff like that. If you lionize as shaheeds, as you see in some cases, the terrorists yeah. responsible for that attack, I'm sorry. That, that's not yeah. okay. And again, if you're calling for violence against Indian government officials, you are also, as far as I'm concerned, an extremist. So, and, and uh, you know, the analogy that I would use is could you imagine if in the immediate aftermath of the FLQ crisis in Quebec, okay, we had terrorists in the Quebec separatist movement who went and established a community in some part of India, okay, and they and they grew and, they, you know, they were, I don't know, calling for the deaths of all sorts of Canadian government officials and calling for an independent, all sorts of whatever you want to call it, okay? Yeah. And Indian politicians made a point of actively pandering to them because they represented, you know, they became an important community, an organized community in certain parts of the country for various purposes. It would be ludicrous. Nobody would ever accept that. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really gotten ridiculous. I mean, the point that you're trying to make is a point that an Indian politician actually made uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and, and it's gotten to the point where uh, some prominent Indian uh, commentators are offering to carve out a separate Khalistan state in Canada. <laughs> uh, you yeah, know, no, it's no. just uh, so some of this is just ridiculous, and it's it's funny, it's entertaining, but uh, but unfortunately, it has serious implications for the bi- bilateral relationship. We've ended up alienating a very important democratic ally, and as which is a counterweight to China. Um, I want to ask you um, a final question, Anthony. Uh, you, you know, the Trudeau and the Liberals have been tacking in the polls. Where does he go from here? I mean, do you think he's going to last another two years? Um, um, do you think he's going to stick it out? I think that's the plan. Uh, you know, that's the thing. There's an expression, you know, God, man plans and God laughs. And also two years in eternity in politics, there's a million and one different things that can happen. But mm-hmm. By all accounts, everybody that I speak to in liberal land and otherwise, their intention as of right now is that the prime minister is going to remain leader of the liberal party until the next election, and he will run against Pierre Polyev. Now, again, maybe caucus gets rowdy. Maybe there's a push. Like There's a million and one different things that have have happened in the past that could happen now. But Mm -hmm. as far as the current intention, it seems he's pretty damn well set on running in the next election. In terms of the liberals being able to stage a comeback, I want to be clear, you know, the Conservative Party of Canada, we're not taking anything for granted. We've underestimated this guy a zillion times before. Mm. Mm. And he beat us three times in a row. Um, We're not going to do that again. There's a very famous quote from the 2015 election campaign where the then chief spokesperson for the Conservative campaign was asked what the expectations were for Mr. Trudeau in the first debate. And he said, if he shows up with his pants on, we'll consider it exceeding Mm. expectations. And then he won a majority mm-hmm. government. We've been in opposition for eight years. So those days are over. That's not happening yeah. again. Stuff looks great now. And are we excited? Of course. Is it showing yeah. that our work is, is resonating? Absolutely. But at the same time, are we going to take our foot off the gas pedal and assume that it's already in the bag when we're potentially still as far as two years away from an election? Absolutely yeah. not. Yeah, a lot can happen between now and then. Uh, well, Anthony, thank you so much for being on the show. It was great to have you. And Thank you for for your insights and for this great conversation. And I hope to have you back soon. Absolutely. All right. All right. All right. Thank you.